And we are back. Yay! 2015! And we are starting with probably what might be our best film of the year, pro- you know. I hope not. I hope not. But there's, there's a chance. I mean, there's a good chance on this one. This is this was fantastic. Yes. I'm gl- I'm so glad it was on the belt. Like I said earlier, I regret the fact that I didn't just spend six more dollars to get the Blu-ray permanently. <laughs> so what are we talking about today? We are talking about 1956's Forbidden Planet by MGM, directed by Frank Wilcox, screenplay by Cyril Hume, based on a novel by someone. Is it? Because there's a novel. There is a novelization. They, I don't know. They didn't they cite it in the credit in the entry credits? No, I don't think so. I thought they did. But I'll have to go back and watch it now. I have until I don't know one a.m. <laughs> but in any case, and starring a lot of people that no one will recognize except a couple of our viewers, our listeners, which is Walter Pigeon and Francis Leslie Nielsen. Yes, he was the he was the captain. No way. Yeah. I totally missed that, and I watched that hard. Yeah. Wow. Leslie Nielsen is, is the captain, you know, back when he did serious dramatic roles. I fucked that up. I did not recognize him at all. Uh, and anyways, Warren Stevens, Jack Kelly, and starring Robbie the Robot as Robbie, Robbie the Robot. Introducing Robbie the Robot. And narrated, but uncredited by Les Tremaine. Who also was the voice of Robbie the Robot. Henceforth, his uncredited nature. Entered into the Library of Congress's National Film Registry in 2013, being deemed culturally, historically, and aesthetically significant. I totally agree. It's an, it's an important film. It was, it was, it's a very important film. It's fantastic. I did not expect to like it. I got bored last night. I'm like, you know what I should probably do? Watch the Delve. I'm already bored. How bad could it get? So I, I rented it from Amazon, I threw it on there, and it was like, it held my interest for the solid two hours it lasted. I think it was like hour 40. But it was 98 minutes, actually, so, yeah. So live, rounding error. But it, it held my interest hard. It was it was actually really decent. And there were, like, reasonable character complexities, and if not complexities, there were at least not two-dimensional characters. There was complexity, there was character development. Mm-hmm. And, like... There wasn't a very good, um, there was no real evil good, like, comparison. It was just, like, not evil and not evil, looking at each other like strange cats. Not evil, not evil, but your mind is trying to kill us. Well, sure, but whose isn't? In a very active sense. Alright, so the plot of this movie is pretty simple. In the 23rd century, which I think is wrong, isn't it? No, they just said they just, we started... We went to the moon in the 21st century. Yeah. Soon after, got light speed. Soon after, went faster than light. So I guess this is the 23rd century. Um, in the 23rd century, you have the ship called the Bellerophon that is going out to... Is it not called the Bellerophon? No, the Bellerophon is, is Morbius' ship. Oh, I'm sorry. That it crashed right. to get 15 or 20 years earlier. It is C-57D, which is basically a flying saucer. So I think we also time travel sooner or later. But being sent to discover the fate of an expedition that was sent out earlier, which is the Bellerophon. So they're being sent to the planet, which I'm looking for the name of, and I should remember, because it was Altair 4. So, and then Kaijinx and Sue. They find that... 99 point something percent of the crew, the expedition crew is deceased. They find Dr. Yeah, Dr. Morbius 
the expedition, one of the expedition scientists is there with his robot, his sexy ass daughter, and a very fortified cube on the planet. Yeah, he lives in what what is one of the most iconic images in science fiction of the the, the great machine, or the the, the Krell's uh, sort of complex. Right. We discover about halfway through that this planet was inhabited by a more superior race who was somewhat larger. And we find out that Dr. Morbius had performed experimentation on himself to make him more smarter. Yes. That is S-M-R-T-R. Smurder? Smurder. I, I didn't realize he's a mumbler. I felt Walter Pickett had a very good uh, elocution. God, that... I mean, I can, I can kind of see Leslie Nielsen in that young face... Well, you've only seen him as an old man. Like, every image of him... The, the first chronological image that I have ever seen of Leslie Nielsen that I'm aware of... Would probably be Naked Mash. Gun. Yeah, Mash or Naked Gun or something. Mash happened before Naked Gun. Yeah. He was still trying to be serious in Mash-ish. Um, and he's, at that point, I think he still has white hair. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so. he, he is... I don't know if he's dying it here or what. I don't know. I mean, they're definitely. I can see the forehead, eyes. Mm-hmm. That's definitely him. But I did not see that at all. I didn't even hear it. You can hear it a little bit, a few times, but. And he definitely has a distinctive voice. It's there. I mean, watch, watch it a little bit again. You'll hear it. Now that you know it, you'll hear it. Yeah, I'm definitely gonna go back and watch it tonight. I think. But um. All right. First things first. The casting was pretty well done. Not knowing any of these people, mm-hmm. except apparently Leslie Nielsen. I liked the casting. Um, at first, I wasn't a big fan of the daughter. Like, like her early actress. On, but I don't think you were put, as a character officer like her either early on. But as I'm watching it, I'm engaging more with her character and realizing that it is just the character. I have a problem with not the actress. But I... I feel like there's just this is such a fucking window in the 1956. <laughs> like I know it takes place in the 23rd century, but as science fiction often does, it like really like really puts a window in there. We're like, yeah, probably by the 21st century we'll get to the moon, and like a little sooner than that. See, that's the thing. <laughs> when we've had films where they get to the you know the moon in like 1950, right? And then, you know, this is, this, I've, this is like the latest I've ever seen. All right, so this brings up an actual question I'd love for anyone who listens to this to answer. Usually you'll listen to it and then wake me up with your tweets, so go ahead and do that. But have we gotten more accurate at predicting when things will happen in terms of science and discovery the further we've come? I don't think so. I think we're about the same accuracy. Like, I, I, I want to, I, I want, I want our learned learned audience to tell me that because I feel I disagree with you I feel like we've gotten a little better about um, predicting where technology will be not always and it really depends on the movie but like in general but we'll see especially like uh, like the only thing I think we're really sadly missing is there's there's a plethora of people like you in science fiction that are like no nah, Things are going to get better. Things are getting better. Whereas I see not enough post-apocalyptic turmoil <laughs> in my science fiction and fantasy. For instance, I read Ready Player One um, a couple weeks ago for the first time. And 
It is a brilliant book, and if there was one thing that is tragic about it, it is that I really think they nailed the future, and it's utter sadness. But in any case, that is a question I've had for, for people, is are we getting more accurate in our predictions of the future via fiction? I, I know you, you, you think it's still that vagary. I think we might have gotten better. I think no, I think we're as good as we always have been. Where we're still way off on some things, and then we're, we're closer, you know, it's still hit or miss. Sure. And I think, I think the microprocessor revolution, things written after that are more accurate than things written before the microprocessor revolution. Okay. I think that is where my threshold is. And when, that, when the next technological revolution comes, then, then we'll have the same kind of problem. Hmm. You know, if that is FTL, if that, you know... Whatever it is. But it's a revolution, so we don't know what it is. All right, so important note in this movie. Disney loaned them animators. I mean, that and that was the standard, you know, back then, and somewhat still now, Disney has staff animators. So the, the id monster that is the main villain of Forbidden Planet was created by Joshua Mader. Mador? I believe Medor. I don't know. I'm probably, gonna, I'll probably over, you know, Medor or something. And right. Who MG or who was loaned to MGM by Walt Disney Pictures? And you'll recognize him from he did the, a lot of the interesting creatures in Fantasia, like the the dinosaur sequence was all it was a lot of that was him. And I want to say a lot of uh, Night on Ball Mountain. But this is interesting. I'm, I'm not sure if you read the article afterwards or not, but apparently he create when you can, when you can see it, he created that as a direct visual reference. To, to the Walter MGM Pagan. Lion. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. Like Leo the Lion, seen at the beginning of Forbidden Planet and most of their mm-hmm. films at the time, it was referencing that. I didn't really notice that. I thought it had... It definitely looked interesting, and I wasn't what I was expecting when I saw at the credits that they were using, like, animation. It, I, see, I, I, I recognize it. Pre, a lot of it as, you know, hand animation. And it does, like, it does have a little goatee beard suggesting Dr. Marvius. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because there's a documentary on the Blu-ray that sort of goes through, like, they went through, you know, 20, 30 different... So, it looks like him, but when it's being hit by the high-energy weapons, mm-hmm. and it's, like, rearing back, that is a direct visual reference to the yeah. uh, Leo the Lion. Okay. But, um... So the special effects in this film are... Fantastic! Amazing! Yeah, it's, like, for 56? Mm-hmm. It's incredible. Yeah, this is a green you know, And I can I watched it last night, and there was no lack in my mind. No. I mean, there are some things that look really fake, and I think what they did was they pulled out most of the stuff like that, like ships landing and mm-hmm. stuff like that, and they're just like, we don't need to show that. Whatever. I mean, I think the weakest part showed some of the vehicles look kind of... I mean, I watched watch it on Blu-ray, so... Sure. You have a remaster issue where some of that looks lighter than it should be. Mm-hmm. So that, I think, was, you know, the, maybe the weakest special effects, some of the practical stuff Yeah, I watched, was a little too cheap. I watched the 299 SD version. I really <laughs> thought of a 56 movie. I could spare the, the dollar for myself. I mean, the animation still looks good, and that was, you know, well done. And, you know, the ray gun fire, Robbie short-circuiting. Ro- no, and Robbie was done really well. Mm-hmm. Like, I love that character. It's so much movement. Mm-hmm. So many moving pieces on that suit. And not only that, but... The guy who did, like, the voice actor really did well at conveying a robot and a robot feeling while still giving it enough emotives to engage with it. Mm-hmm. Like, whenever Robbie talks to the princess, that robot is rolling his eyes. I think almost, almost anyone. 
Yeah, I mean, he's definitely like he's like you're just such a simple thing, but it's okay, simple thing. Yeah, other than maybe Morbius, I think I think we should talk about that character. Morbius sure. is a very we we meet Morbius really early on, and he is just like he is anti-establishment to the extreme. Like as soon as he sees them, he's like, "Get out." <laughs> He has, you know, lived on this moon, on this planet for, you know, 25 years now, had a daughter. He has an iconic look that reminds me very much of, is it a Flash Gordon villain? Who's like, that goatee. Ming the Merciless? Ming the Merciless. Yeah, I mean, for me, it's it's Clash Doctor Who Master, another one, you know, the same black outfit, goatee. Sure. And he's obviously intelligent. He's so dismissive and sardonic. Like, there's a point in the movie where they're doing, like, IQ comparisons via a computer and, like, he's, like, super high, and the doctor of the ship is just, like, like it's like reasonably high. He's, like, 160, and he's, like, that's not bad, doctor, not bad. Yeah. And the captain goes on there, and they don't ever tell you what his IQ is, but he's just, like, that's okay. I guess commanding officers <laughs> don't need brains. <laughs> he, he is definitely the asshole scientist. He is. Tragically so. Because he's... Actually, a character that I almost engaged in with the most once I figured out everything that was happening. Well, he's a much he, he really is a tragic character that his you know his research is killing him, and he doesn't realize that or accept it. Right. Not only that, but he's like he's he's developed this sheltered life, and he's completely convinced himself that it's all for the best, even when some things aren't. Yeah, and but- I think that he shares a a sampling of, of scientific ideology, which is just like, well, you can't be trusted with this knowledge. And I think that you see that a lot, and that's especially a common reoccurrence in 56, where we're just coming off the atom bomb. And Yeah, yeah I'd say even before that, you know, we're going back to the Lovecraft things, this has a little bit of that Lovecraft-style horror, of the idea of a mind creature almost. No, it's the, there's definitely that, but I think that they're pulling the, the scientists is a representative, is so a representative. It's more like a 50s, yes. Right there, yeah. where you're like, you're cutting off of all those discoveries in World War II and yeah, the, what we yeah. did with them. Yeah, well, this is, yeah, this is pulling from, you know, that, you know Shakespeare, mm-hmm. the 50s, and then, you know, Lovecraftian horror in a lot of ways. Definitely. And I mean, like, the Id monster was done so well because they sneak him in. He doesn't, he's not even a thing. They give you plenty of time for character development. They give plenty of time to frame Morbius. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you don't see it until maybe more than halfway through the film of you're dealing with this at all. And you're just assuming that Dr. Morbius is somehow behind all this stuff. Because there's no, there's been really no other. Nothing, you know. I half expected whatever was invisibly sneaking on the ship to be like Robbie the Robot sense. It would make, you know, that would definitely make more sense in a normal narrative form. Sure. But- and I love that it wasn't, mm-hmm. because I don't think – I think that Morbius is a tragic character. Yeah, but if it was Robbie, this film wouldn't be talked about. No. But it, because of that, because of the production value of this film. Sure. Because everything else has influenced. Absolutely. It's influenced so many things. It's influenced – Star Trek. Much. Let's be honest here. When you're following Star Trek, right. you you know, there's not much – But not only that, I think that you'd be hard-pressed to find a space-oriented thing that's been made since it. Where they haven't at least, like, seen it and been inspired. Maybe 2001. That'd be the only one I could say that might not sort of... He breaks most rules. ...be able to pull from this. He breaks most rules. And even that I'd be interested in just because I wonder if Robbie the Robot is something that he referenced before he decided, like, what he, decided, what he was making his decisions on for how. Possibly Clark. I know, but I don't know about... Yeah, probably Clark probably was, was aware of this. I don't know how much... Um, 
other guy. Right. Yeah, who why we, we, we always like we always every time we talk about him. He did the shining Shining and you know, eyes wide shot. Why the fuck? Every fucking time we talk about him. Who directed the shining? Shut up, Siri. <laughs> who directed two thousand one? Stanley Kubrick. Stanley Kubrick. Who we all yeah, every time we talk about Stanley Kubrick. Thank you, Siri. <laughs> Every fucking time we talk about him, I don't know. We even had an episode on him. At least we remembered. We, re- we recorded it twice. And we never released the, uh, either episode. We need, we need to get. Yeah, that so should be in our projects to do. Right. Re- read the book. Watch the movie. Uh, the book would be interesting to read. All right. So, so, um, we have. I would like to take a brief instant to talk about Morbius's daughter, whose name is eluding me. Something spacey. Something spacey, blah, blah, daughter is Altaria, Altera, who's only ever met her father, and maybe her mother briefly. It's unclear as to whether her mom died in birth or shortly thereafter. But anyways, so mom and the robot, she apparently has this innocent nature where she can, like, tame animals with her superior brain or something. I think that might, that might be out of the Tempest. Like, a lot of those elements of sort of Morbius being a super powerful... Alright, I'd like to... Scientist and her being, you know, having some power. I'd like to pause since we are talking about her. There's a thing that I felt was left empty that maybe you caught and I didn't. Okay. There's a point where she can no longer do that. Mm-hmm. And I'm led to believe it's because she starts falling in love with the captain. That's my assumption that, like... But they never discuss it. No. I think that is just sort of a visual sign in the movie supposed to put the clues together that she's moved from her father to the captain. But it's still really bizarre that, that, that this thing happens and they don't discuss it at all. And I'd like some of our more learned scholars to like maybe give their opinions. Like, you know, we have a few people that could have easily guessed it on this episode. They probably would have wanted to. Is that from the Tempest is what I'm asking. Is that sort of... Yeah, and if not, are there any clues that we missed... That they are describing what happened, because I think our assumption's right. I think you know she's she's just her innocence is being lost. Then that's where her yeah yeah. But in any case, she's played by the only female name I mentioned, Anne Francis. She um is wonderfully childish. She's I don't know catty but innocent. She's catty. She's innocent. Then she moves to being skeptical of her father. What's going on? Now. She is. Like every space, like basically spacemen in the 23rd century mm-hmm. are seamen who have been out too long. Yeah, pa- yeah. Apparently, we have not discovered in, in in human society that women can be on a ship. Not only that, but like in any way, shape, or form, maybe you know some holographic relief or something. But no, they are yeah. horny as yeah, sailors is, on leave. This is apparently like you know what you'd imagine, like you know, Great White Fleet era America right. of just men on boats exploring the, you know, the vast seas of space. Yeah, to the point where one of the lieutenants basically says that the captain's a passionate rapist <laughs> and that she wouldn't be safe with him. He should stick to her. And then proceeds to have, like, to just force her to kiss him repeatedly. I don't feel anything. something wrong with me? Is there something wrong with you? <laughs> But no, like, that's, like, talking about the princess, you have to talk about, like, how women were seen. Gender roles in 56. Yeah. Exactly. And it's obviously where he's, like, the captain is very much treating her 
like a second class citizen where he's just like, you dress, you know, it, you know, it's your own fault that this is happening. You're dressing too scanty. And I didn't think that was, is it bad that I didn't think that was a scantily clad outfit at all? No, you're a child of the 90s. Okay. <laughs> and no, what's really bad is when her, she... Her actual official outfit When is, she's just like, give me something that covers me head to toe and I'm expecting like a fucking cassock for the, from the Ben Gesserit. <laughs> And what we get is, like, a nice summer dress. Why do you shave your head? <laughs> I just, like, I'm, like, I think I, I would just assume that ankles and wrists would be covered. <laughs> but, like, I think it was a long skirt. It was but, a longer skirt. But the sleeves were completely, Well, you like, know, short. it's a warm planet. She, Robbie understands. Robbie knows that she needs to be a little comfortable. But she's also, she's so, like, her main parts in the movie are, like, no, you make me a dress. I need to. I need to stick my tongue out at the captain. It's it's the gender roles are probably like the worst part of it, but yeah. at the same time. But she's the only character of the character arc. It's also just uh, important historically to be able to see this and see that this is what this is was, what we were was propagated as what women should be like. Exactly, and like the idea that we couldn't get out of our own way. To see a different way. Like, we just... That was, of course, what it was going to be like, because it was right. I'll tell you now. <laughs> but it was it was astonishing. I'm just watching every scene with her. Just like, what are you guys going to do now? What horrible thing are you going to say now? <laughs> At least, like, I never commanded her to cook or anything. Like... No, of course. That's Robbie the Robot's job. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's a servant's <laughs> job. And I would like to point out that the most happy and satisfied Robbie ever was was when they make him their navigator bitch on the ship when they leave. <laughs> he's like, all right, Skipper. I'm out of here. We're doing that. At least he's, at least Robbie's like, I'm out of here. Do you think he's holding it all in? Like, they're going to get, oh, he's on a spaceship. As soon as they take off, he's just going to murder everyone. See, he's totally Asimovian. He can't do that. He is. He is. He's Asimovian almost to a fault. Because the only thing that I... The That's only, every Asimov story. But the only plot point I really had a problem with is where you have Morbius go... Destroy this thing! And Robbie shuts down because Robbie is so, like, Robbie, like, Morbius is causing this it monster, so he'd have to kill Morbius. And I'm just like, you could go down and break the machine. <laughs> like, you don't have to kill him. It's not the only way to fucking stop this. It's ridiculous. Maybe Robbie knows he just couldn't destroy the machine. Maybe. It was a pretty indestructible machine. Maybe. I think there were other ways out of it than killing Morbius. No. The only way out to destroy the id monster. If nothing else, maybe just knock him out. <laughs> the id survives. Everything I've seen in sci-fi is the id survives when you're knocked out or asleep. Drug him. You don't dream when you're drugged. There we go. See? You just gotta think outside the box. Yeah, I think that's a psychologist. But see, ha- uh, see, drugging him would be harming him and you can't harm a human. Should be like, Robbie, go get us some ketamine. We'll take it from there. <laughs> but no, I, I thought the music was on par. The effects were brilliant. The music is all done by machine. Interesting. All electronic. There's no instruments in it. And they were not uh they were not they could they could not be credited as composers. Because of rules in nineteen fifty six? Yes. I enjoyed they, the They uh, did the electrical tone was it electrical tonalities. Mm-hmm. It contributed well to the atmosphere. Yes. Now, the music is, is a classic soundtrack now. I, I really enjoy it. Mm-hmm. But no, I, I, 
I would say, I would especially say that if you've ever, oh, this is interesting, novelization did come out before the movie, but it was based on the movie. Okay, so it's still a novelization. Yeah. Um, I just say, you know, this this deserves its place on any list you find it on. It's all of $9 on Blu-ray. If you've never seen it, you absolutely, like, it's worth the $9 just to get it's, it. And there's some good documentaries. There's a whole other film on there. Mm-hmm. There's the, I think, The Invisible Boy and then an episode of some other show that Robbie was on. Okay. And, like, this is, like, if you ever watched Lost in Space as a kid, this is totally what it was based on, really. Well, Robbie was up in that twice. Yeah. This is well worth seeing, and I highly recommend it. I did not expect it to be as good as it was. It held my interest, which is, as you know, a very sometimes difficult, strong compliment. I don't want them to remake it. No, I don't want them to remake it with James Cameron. No. Oh, see, last I had heard that it was JMS who was remaking it. I would totally accept a JMS remake. Nothing has happened since 2013 November, and Straczynski was meeting on was was meeting with people. I'd accept him. I'd accept him working on it. Um, yeah, because there's, like, there's a lot of Straczynski references, including the one you mentioned today, mm-hmm. earlier, which was The Great Machine from Babylon 5. Yeah, season. which apparently they didn't notice when they were making it. Like, the guy made it that, you know, they designed it that way, and then went, oh, shit, we made Forbidden Planet. You think that's cool? <laughs> I mean, Straczynski is such a nerd anyway. No, I mean, he, he, this is, what he says is one of his favorite science fiction films. Um... It's fantastic. Um, Straczynski definitely like cites it. Like I, I think that this is just part of our group mind now. I, you know, it, it totally is. And even if you haven't seen it, it was like I was like I'm like nope, yeah, okay. It's like I'm home again. Like the transporter from Star Trek was in here. So much just stuff. Yeah, absolutely. These yeah. force fields. The idea of humans exploring. Now, this is the absolutely. first. This is the first film apparently where humans are landing on another planet. I just, I really find it interesting that this UFO concept that we have in our group fears is just like, yeah, they're like, we fly them around. That's what we do. Well, you know, we're, you know, we've progressed to a point in society. I, I do want to know which came first. Did he make this film and they're like, okay, well, that's how aliens fly around. Now, UFOs are before this. So he just decided to, like, own it. I think so. I, or they just, you know, use that as their design. Right. But in any case, definitely, if you, like, I guarantee you, most of you have seen it, and this was all for me. But if you haven't, you have to see this. It was fantastic. The only reason I would say you don't have to see it is if you really, really hate science fiction. Which, I don't see too many of you out there who are listening to us who feel that way. Who are listening to a science fiction podcast. Well, amongst other things. But the Delve is exclusively science fiction. The Delve is science fiction. And on occasion, weird things that we inflict on upon each other. Yes. But no, like definitely watch this. Any other last sum-ups? Uh, no, I think we quite fit all our points. Excellent. Uh, next on the delve is... Next up, we're doing another classic, uh, Barbarella. Dun-dun-dun. So we're going to see another view, you know, jump about 12 years in the future and see how women are interpreted, you know, in 1968. I- I'm going to make a prediction. Uh, my prediction is we will have a guest star for Barbarella. <laughs> Are we gonna try to find a woman to be to be a guest star on Barbarella? I don't. No, I'm just thinking that if if you mention on on Twitter that we're doing Barbarella, I think that you will have to like make people get in line. 
to talk about this film. Okay, we'll see. All right, till next time. See you then.